welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 97th episode, I'll be talking to Sophie Brookover, co-creator of Two Bossy Dames, librarian and pop culture writer, about FM radio and magazines. Along the way, we discuss how knowing really is half the battle, the eternal television career of Frank Luke Pike, and how you're never too old to get really, really excited for your Beatle block. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail and let you know how you can become a guest on The Math of You. We join this conversation already in progress. Sophie, for those who may not know you, why don't you say who you are and what makes you a beautiful and unique snowflake? (laughs) Hi, I'm Sophie Brookover. I'm a librarian and I have a book recommendation for people who are interested in the science of snowflakes. It's a wonderful picture book from, I want to say the late 90s, called Snowflake Bentley, which is about the guy who first developed techniques for photographing snowflakes and oh yeah yeah, yeah. I, th- I think i've actually i've heard that story on a, like a radio program i think it was on cbc or something yeah where, yeah it was hugely influential yes yes i think he was the first to realize that no two snowflakes are exactly alike the picture book about him won the caldecott medal the year that it came out so hi i'm a librarian and i am also the co-founder and co-author of the weekly pop cultural commentary criticism enthusiastic yelling newsletter to bossy dames with my friend margaret willison who is also a librarian those are probably my two you know biggest things i'm an internet person who you can come chat with about pretty much anything to do with popular culture and i'm also usually good for a reading recommendation well considering you came in swinging with a reading recommendation before you'd finished introducing yourself (laughs) i'd say that's like a strong vote in your favor yeah yeah Always, you know, just always looking for a text to self or text to life connection for people. Just just <laughs> live to furnish context for people. You also came in with a recommendation about historical photography, which, shut up. It's like you're speaking directly <laughs> to my interest. Come on now. I was at a... Um... Pandering to the host. <laughs> oh, yes, just constantly. My dad sent me a link to some exhibit at an art museum. This is going back a couple of years. I guess I looked at that and then I looked at a different, I was looking at a different exhibit that was coming up and I texted him back. I was like, oh, dad, check this one out. Like it's historical photography. And as you know, like early 20th century cyanotypes are extremely my shit. <laughs> and he was like, mine too. Oh, that's true. <laughs> it's almost like we're related. Yeah. Hey, Wild. And you're speaking to somebody who bought a book on a photography exhibit from the early 1900s of like tintype and like, you know, salt prints and stuff like that in a German museum. And the book's in German and I can't read German. 
That sounds like a... But I bought it. A challenge. Well, yeah. I mean, if it's... Is it heavily illustrated? Is it just like captions in German? Uh, no. Well, it's like maybe every second page is text and the others are photography. And okay. so it's basically all the photos of the exhibit. And it's actually really good. And I've used it as like reference material in some exhibits that I've done. Oh, cool. So clearly it was worth the 32 euros that I paid for it at the Munich Museum that I found by accident because I was walking because I'd eaten too much heavy food. Which is the best way to find a museum, really? Yeah, I think so. Well, then you like you've you've fueled up, and you can go and like soak up the art and sort of like walk off some of that food coma as you stroll through the galleries. But you're not gonna overexert yourself and make yourself sick to your stomach. Yeah, it's true. So yeah, that sounds pretty good. And then for the text, you know, you can I'm sure you can get the gist from like Google Translate or something. See, there you go. Spetzler leads to learning, yeah, ladies and gentlemen. Absolutely. Now you know. <laughs> and knowing is half the battle. Small tangent. You know, I like the knowing is half the battle thing from G.I. Joe has been part of my brain since I was about five years old to the point where my mother started saying it. Like, it's like if I say something like, well, now I know. And she will go, and knowing is half the battle. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, mom, you're a 60-year-old minister from rural Canada. I don't think that that really comes out much. But I've started saying it in my job. And people are looking at it like... What do you do? And then finally I had to explain to my boss, I'm like, it's from G.I. Joe. And he's like, you know, no one in Australia ever watched that. And I'm like, so I can make it a me thing. Yeah. They don't need to know, like, the source material. And, like, I think that that, I mean, that's a phrase that's definitely entered the lexicon at large. Like, I did watch G.I. Joe, the greatest American hero, uh, as a child. But I definitely mm-hmm. didn't remember G.I. <laughs> Joe is there. I definitely did not remember that that was the origin of the phrase knowing is half the battle. Yeah, it was from the little PSAs they had to put at the end of the episode. Oh, okay. That would say things like, oh, if your friend has a nosebleed, he shouldn't tip his head back because that could make him choke. Mm. You need to lean him forward and put bandages on it and get a parent. Or, you know, if you see that a power line has come down, you shouldn't go anywhere near it. And you should call someone and then they'll come with special tools to take it away. Right. Because you don't know if it's live or not. And hey, some of those things actually have helped me as a, as a kid who was prone to nosebleeds. And as someone who once saw a power line come down. Yeah, they really are everyday occurrences. So thanks, G.I. Joe. There is a thing where people will make fun of PSAs, especially from the 80s. But I remember there was a Bugs Bunny and other Looney Tunes one that told you about the dangers of burning or scalding in the kitchen or the bathroom. Mm. And there was one where Bugs Bunny told you that when you put a pot on the stove, you should turn the handle towards the kitchen counter or towards the back of the stove so that when you walk by, you don't bump it. And that's not just, you know, Bugs Bunny advice. That's a good idea. That is, yeah. No, that is just good kitchen safety slash life advice. There you go. Yeah, I like it. I don't, I'm trying to think, how do we get onto the topic of PSAs? We're tangenting already. Uh, I don't know, but we did through some conversational alchemy. That's what we're here for. So listeners, if you do want to check out sort of an encapsulation of what Two Bossy Dames is, you can subscribe or you can look for one of their many movie live tweets where I think like more than half of my Twitter timeline just gets taken over <laughs> by y'all watching something like what was it? There was the Rogue One one. What, was, what were some of the others? Uh, there was the, done... Was there a Christmas Prince one? I feel like there was. Whether no, it was just like heavily discussed. No, we, no we, we haven't done a Christmas Prince. We've done Rogue One. We've done Moonstruck, Clueless. Mo- that was the other one. Um, yeah. Moonlight. We've done A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. Which is such a good oh, movie. That's one of my favorite movies of the last five years. Like easily. 
I think about that movie all the time. Yeah, so we try to do a mishmash. Some of them are things that we know are going to attract like a pretty large audience. Like when we did Sense and Sensibility. I mean, I think any 19th century <laughs> English novels <laughs> adaptation, like that's extremely our brand. But we yeah, are yeah. also both nerds for things that are maybe slightly more obscure. And so, uh, you know, sometimes we'll watch, oh, we did Tangerine, which is that movie shot entirely on an iPhone uh, about like two trans sex workers. Like sometimes it's, oh, I want to make sure to watch this. Sometimes Mm -hmm. it's me. What's a way I can engage everybody? Exactly, exactly. Also hold yourself accountable. Right, right, right. And and like, yeah, use the platform that we have. You know, the the readership of Two Bossy Dames is over 7,000 people now. And so I think we have, we both feel like a, a responsibility and also a delight in introducing people to things that they might not otherwise encounter, as well as, you know, revisiting with them things that are cultural touchstones. Yeah. And there is something, and it's like, my friend Alex has called me out on this a lot, where there is something when you're watching something out of time or something that, you know, sparks an interest in you and you want to share that. And hey, I mean, for all the people will hang shit on the internet for being, oh, this is a performative place. Well, it's also a great place for you to put stuff out that people can then respond to. Yeah. Like, I'll do that with old movies from the library or just like things I catch on TV will just be like, I'm really interested in this and I know nothing about it. Come and talk to me about this thing. And I found lots of stuff that way. And uh, the way he kind of teased me about it is he saw me, like I messaged him a whole bunch about something that he had seen and I hadn't. And he's like, oh, so you're like this all the time, not just, you know. <laughs> on the internet about occasional things. And I'm just like, shut up. You're enjoying this. (laughs) But can I just make a small suggestion? Sure. And again, feel free to discount it. It is one person's word. The Cutting Edge with Moira Kelly and D.B. Sweeney, I think would make for a great kind of tweet along. Topic. Yes, I'm sure it would. (laughs) Yes. See, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, you have to understand. I mean, that is a movie that was in theaters. uh, I was somewhere in the like late high school early college time when that came out so yes i haven't seen it since then but i really really enjoyed it i love i love a sports movie i love romance so yes that would squarely be in my wheelhouse i don't know if it's streaming uh, anywhere now but i will certainly check on it if it isn't it should be yeah yeah it definitely should be i mean considering that you look at that genre of movies that have been vindicated by cable you know, being on at two o'clock on a Sunday on TBS Superstation, those kind of movies, that fits squarely into that wheelhouse. So yeah, it does. I think that's where streaming really has its niche, where it's like, if you ever think like, have a moment where some confluence of circumstances reminds you that the cutting edge is a thing, and you go, I want to watch that movie right now. And it's then available to you. That's what streaming is for. Yes. Netflix, if you're listening, that's what streaming is for. (laughs) You're the new TBS Superstation. That's your role. Lean into it. Exactly. (laughs) All right, well, let's start with the basics, Sophie. Whereabouts did you grow up? I grew up in the Philadelphia suburbs on the New Jersey side in a small town called Haddonfield, which if you are interested in horror movies and have seen Halloween, it might be ringing a faint little bell. And that's because that's the name of the town that the movie takes place in. And that is because the woman who wrote that screenplay went to my high school what yes she's an alumna (laughs) of my high school it's a really nice little town it's easy to get to the city it's one of those places where like everybody walks to school because it's so small 
I'm sorry, I'm not being very exciting on the subject of my hometown, although I do love it. <laughs> and and I now live like just another town away in the same area. But yeah, no, I'm a Philadelphia, greater metropolitan region person, a Delaware Valley person, for sure. See, and the thing about the walking to school stuff, see, yeah, at various points in my childhood, I was close enough that I could walk to school. Although I found just maybe this is just me. The closer you live to the school, the more likely it is that you were going to be late. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. It was just this thing where you're like, I can cut it as close as I need to. And it's like, no, you can't. You really can't. Yeah. At a certain point, you're not cutting it close. You're just late. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's no daylight between those two possibilities. Once you get to a certain proximity or a certain amount of like a certain number of times you hit the snooze button or are dawdling over your breakfast. So, yes, I always walked to school with neighbors. So and in I think almost all of those cases, it was me picking them up because they were closer, like a couple of blocks closer to school than I was. So that was always part of it. And then my my youngest sister, she was she was like the caboose of the of the getting to school train for, (laughs) for her friend group. Another example of a group of other people keeping you accountable for something that you could probably let slide on your own. Yes, yes, definitely. Yeah, there was at one point I was living just sort of kitty corner to the schoolyard. We were on one corner and the corner of the schoolyard was on the other. Mm-hmm. And for a little while, there was a hole in the fence that I could go through. And that would mean I could just walk across the playground and be there. Except for then they fixed the fence. Oh, no. And I realized that it took a good seven minutes to walk all the way around the outside fence of the campus to get to the door where I can go in. And look, Kid Lucas was not good at extrapolating that. And so it was, oh, I'm just around the corner. I can leave when I leave. And it's like, no, no, you can't. No, no, not anymore. And it was a small enough town that the teachers knew where you lived. So they could be like, you really don't have any excuse. And I'm like, look, yes, but shut up. Structural changes have occurred and I have not yet caught up with them. (laughs) I just need you to be a little sympathetic while I figure this out. Look, really, honestly, it's your fault for fixing the fence. Right. If you had just left it in disrepair... (laughs) None of this would be a problem. Yeah, I was talking to someone the other day, which again reminded me, because there was a, the hole in the fence situation, that it's a Canadian thing to just run across a highway because it's quicker than going the overpass. And usually there are not, like, you know, fences or anything, except for on in some occasions. And yeah, someone mentioned it to me just in passing. They were like, oh, I lived in Canada for a while. What's with you people running across highways? <laughs> And of course, it all came crashing back. And that, yeah, when I was in high school in Fredericton, there was the Fredericton Mall, which kind of sucked. And it was basically a strip mall that was enclosed. And then there was the Regent Mall, which was better. But that took 20 minutes to walk around over the overpass and get down there. Yeah. And you only had, like, you know, a high school lunch break, so it wasn't very long. And so what we would do is we'd walk out the back of the Fredericton Mall, cross a small highway, and then run across a big highway to a hole in the fence where we could then get into the parking lot. And just thinking back, I'm like, that was six lanes of, like, interprovincial traffic. Big semi-trucks and people who were not stopping for anything. Yeah, how did you not get smushed? (laughs) Dumb luck, I guess. So, in this small town, I almost said in West Philadelphia, but I realized I don't know know the direction of Philadelphia. Uh, Philadelphia (laughs) Philadelphia is west of New Jersey, because it's in Pennsylvania, across the Delaware River. I realize that I'm asking your listeners to know a lot about some very specific regional geography. But yeah, West Philly is to the west of where I grew up. There you go. So, in this undecided area, in this smush that is the east coast of the U.S., (laughs) what sort of kid were you? 
I don't know that I'm the right one to answer this question. I think maybe my parents and teachers would be the right one to ask. You know, bookish, uncoordinated, but I think I had a decent attitude about that. Like I, I hated PE class with a fiery passion, but I really liked, like I played softball, I played intramural basketball, not well, but I had very nice coaches who really walked the walk <laughs> in terms of like making this municipal athletic activity accessible to everyone, no matter how unathletically gifted they were. And I had a lot of, as, as I do now, a lot of indoor pursuits. I loved to read and my parents are both really big music people. My dad is more like the pop and rock side of things. And my mom knows so much about like classical music and like 20th century American musicals. So like they had a really great LP collection, which a lot of which now lives in my house. And my dad like taught us how to place records on the record player carefully. And like my sisters and I would listen to those a lot. And I loved television. At the time, most of what I loved was definitely in the category of what my parents considered trash. Um, but uh, I watched it anyway. And okay, okay. You can't you can't just say that without providing some examples. Oh, I will be so, happy. Sophie, tell me of the trash. Okay, all right. So here, f- first, I will preface this by saying that when I was very small, they were able to control what I watched, as I think all parents of like a first child are able to do. So the three, uh, sort of a given was like Sesame Street, Mister Rogers' Neighborhood, that type of thing. Then. The other shows that we watched as a family, even when I was little, were M.A.S.H., Shanana, and The Muppet Show. Okay. And I think they all aired, they all aired on Saturdays, or maybe Saturday, maybe it was across Saturday and Sunday. And then as far as I was aware, television only existed for the purpose of broadcasting Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And then my first younger sister was born, and... I met the kids from down the street whose parents were a lot more lenient about what they could watch on TV and discovered like Looney Tunes, the Brady Bunch, the Dukes of Hazard, the A-Team. For a while, the monkeys were syndicated on one of our <laughs> television. So I watched that constantly. And then like, you know, somewhere in there, we were able to like VCRs became available and initially we would rent them. We didn't, we didn't buy one for a really long time until maybe I was, I mean, in my mind, it was a really long time. It was probably a matter of 18 months <laughs> between when they first became commercially available and when we got one. But I remember pouring over the TV listings in the newspaper and selecting in advance what I was going to record and like learning how to set the VCR so that like so I could record EastEnders and Monty Python and Blackadder and <laughs> Red Dwarf but also a lot of other like network shows like I watched there was one that Kevin Spacey was on in the early or the late the late 80s about he wasn't he wasn't the protagonist he was like the villain one season but it was about it was a okay. basically it was about a guy who goes like deep undercover for the FBI, and it's about like how traumatizing that experience is. Every and like every season was like one big arc of him like taking down some bad guy. 
Kevin Spacey was the bad guy one season. Of course he was. And that was the first time I'd ever seen him. And the guy who was the TV reviewer at the time for The Inquirer just like raved about this performance. And that's actually what got me to watch it. And his name like lodged in my head so that when I saw that he was in, you know, such and such a movie, I was like, oh, that guy from I think the show was called Wise Guy. I definitely want to see that because I've heard he's a really good actor. (laughs) Oh, time, (laughs) time, time is a revelator. So, I've heard it's also a flat circle. Yeah. By the way, did you know that Wise Guy ran until 2009? Are you kidding? With the, like the same protagonist? I'm looking at it Whoa. and I pres- Jonathan Banks. Oh, hey, Jim Burns. I love Jim Burns. He was on Highlander. Yeah. Wow. And it looks like it. Yeah, there are people who stayed on 1987 to 2009. Jonathan Banks as Frank McPike wow. was in 74 episodes Whoa. from 87 to 2009. Wow. I, I hope he is getting so much residuals money from that wow that's amazing is was it a cbs show i feel like cbs never cancels anything it was it was made by great don't tell me anything it's all right Stephen j cannell frank lupo yeah whatever it doesn't matter i'm just networks like, just idly curious that's fascinating well there you go yeah so um <laughs> yeah and then i guess i was in second grade maybe so like seven or eight when somebody gave me my first Walkman, which didn't have a tape deck, it was just a little radio that you could plug your, your headphones in. And it was so small. It was like the size of a pack of cigarettes. And it wasn't digital. It was you, you could roll up and down the dial. That was it. <laughs> but that was also an incredible amount of freedom for me because, you know, nobody else had to listen to what I was listening to. And I quickly figured out that I could like scrolling up and down the dial would lead me into all these little sonic byways like little blue highways and that was really I think the beginning of my experiences becoming like a completely obsessive musical autodidact and thing is okay we are actually going to put on our you know progressive lenses and put them down the end of our nose and throw on our cardigans and Uh carpet slippers and stuff and say you see kids Back in the day, when <laughs> you heard a song on the radio, one, you had no idea what that song was. Right. And two, you could come in in the middle of that song and there was a chance you would never hear that song again. Yep. You had to develop your ear. I think that's actually been a huge factor for me. I just had to teach myself what Tom Petty's voice sounded like, what John Cougar Mellencamp's voice sounded like, what Bruce Springsteen's voice sounded like, and be able to differentiate among them. Like, obviously, I don't think Tom Petty sounds anything like the other two guys, but the other two guys, (laughs) you know, you, if you, if you didn't know that Bruce Springsteen's true musical idiom is R&B, and if you didn't know that John Mellencamp's true musical idiom is country, you, I was just about to say country. You yep. could be forgiven for mistaking one for the other. But like, I learned very early on, even though I didn't know what a glockenspiel was, <laughs> I could pick it out. And I thought, okay, I heard the glockenspiel or whatever. What, I don't know. Maybe I thought it was a xylophone when I was that age. I was like, okay, this is going to be Bruce Springsteen. And like, it just, it led me to, I would listen to the radio in these incredibly long blocks and I would wait for the DJ to come back to say, okay, like, that was the police. You know, that was Peter Gabriel. That was this person. And then in my teen years, I babysat a lot. And so I started subscribing to, like, Rolling Stone when I was 12. And then Spin in high school. And so between those 
magazines and the amount of radio that I listened to either on the way to school or while I was doing my homework, I just started to develop a, I think for a 14 or 15 year old, fairly encyclopedic knowledge of what was popular on the radio and what I didn't realize was classic rock, but certainly was classic rock. (laughs) But I look back on it and the couple of the classic rock stations in Philadelphia at the time, they didn't just play music retrospectively. They were also playing like contemporary releases by classic rock artists because in the 80s, those guys were still releasing music really, really regularly like David Bowie and Paul McCartney. You know, they would get very excited about the latest Squeeze album, you know, but you you could expect (laughs) to hear the single on what was functionally classic rock radio and on the top 40 station which i just think is i I think it's very interesting slash sad slash weird the way that genres have calcified so much on radio like i'll listen you know i still love classic rock and one of the classic rock stations in philly is still one of my presets on my car radio but i'll listen to it for an hour and hear one female artist it's joan jett or pat benatar or stevie nicks or hart or Janis Joplin, do you know what I mean? And maybe like three others. And this is not to say anything bad about them. They're great. But I would like to hear a much broader range and more frequently. I would like to hear female artists more frequently. And I think the only black artist they ever play is Jimi Hendrix. Ah, yes. That's it. But meanwhile, the station that used to be the oldies station and is now like your home for the 80s, because they don't want to tell 80s kids that they're old, even though, like, we know how old we are. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Their playlist is so much more diverse. Like, you'll hear some British Invasion, you'll hear disco, you'll hear funk, you'll hear, like, electropop. It's power pop sometimes. It's great. Like, that's, and then, like, so that is... Of the stations that don't play contemporary music, that's actually my favorite one because I just think it it it, it flattens out the sound in one way, but I think it flattens it out in a way that is just more pleasing to me personally. No, I, I think you're definitely onto something there. And I mean, for all the people will deride the format of, hey, it's the 70s, 80s, 90s, and now, which just basically means we can play whatever we want. Yeah. Really, when you think about it, you do need that kind of breadth to get, like you said, you know, a little bit of diversity and representation and even just a bit of a change sometimes from the same old white guy dinosaurs. Right. I don't need to be told, like, uh, I will say, though, that I have a a real fond place in my heart for one of the DJs on on the Classic Rock station. His name is Andre Gardner, and he's like the Monday through Friday afternoon guy. And he has like a, a, a beetle block every afternoon. Like, that is something that it doesn't need to exist. However, he is so genuinely excited and jazzed to play for you the fool on the hill. Like, he's just <laughs> so excited to talk about his boys. And I'm like, you know what? Fandom never dies. Like, you you know, you, you start out loving a band when you're 14 or whatever. And damn, like, you're in your late 60s and you're still so pumped to play this track off of Rubber Soul. (laughs) I'm like, you know what, Andre? I identify with that. You carry on, please. Yes. You keep doing what you're doing. It'll be a sad day when he retires or dies. I'll I'll be really heartbroken, actually, because I've been listening to him on the radio since I was like 10. 
So it's been a long while. There is something about specifically voices on the radio. And we talked about this a bit with Osvaldo Ayola, where he was talking about some of the hip hop DJs that he was listening to on the radio mm. that would bring him so much of the important music that like he trusted that name. Yeah. Oh, yeah. When it came in. So it was like, oh, this person has recommended this thing. Oh, we know it's going to be good. And I'm going to have to tape it and listen to it repeatedly until I understand why it's good. Yeah. Because this trusted person in my life has told me this. Yeah. I think it's definitely a very strong net positive. The definition of who gets to be a gatekeeper is changing. I think that that's very, very good. I think that it can be difficult to find that person in your cultural life who you do trust. Like, I think that's it's because the field has gotten larger and more diverse. It's also, I think, gotten more atomized. And I think discovery is a real challenge. And that's actually something like, I don't think that Margaret and I intended to address that issue when we started writing Two Bossy Dames, but it became clear that that was something that our readers really appreciated. I think because I don't think you can expect most people to be as culturally omnivorous as we are. And because we do consume so much culture, I think we're sort of always constantly sifting through like, what we're experiencing and thinking about what it goes with like oh this music you know is part of the power pop lineage or like i just started listening this week to the new npr music austin 100 playlist and the very first song i think is by a band that like has includes australian members and american members and like i could hear from the opening notes like whoever these people are like they have been listening to the go-betweens for a very long time <laughs> like that was very very obvious and you know that's good you don't have to come to music with that backlog i think but it is as a listener i always find it interesting to think about like how does this song that I'm listening to, like, what is its musical lineage? How does it fit in to sort of the story of popular music? Like, it's something I was thinking about, as you were saying, like, there's the gatekeeping aspect of it, but there's also that kind of chaining on aspect where you'll like one person and you'll read an interview with that person and they'll say they really loved these people. Yes. So you will go and look up these people. Yes. And in a very early episode of this show, Megan Nielsen talked about that with Gerard Way, who is My Chemical Romance and wrote Umbrella Academy, yeah. which mm -hmm. I've been watching on Netflix. It's a real good show. He went in and basically said, oh, I really love this comics writer named Grant Morrison. And she walked into her local comic shop and said, I will have all the Grant Morrison that I can buy with this much money. Right. And so this idea of, okay, well, these people can be gateways. And you're right. It is difficult to have that sort of discovery now when everything is online. But then again, like I've done it where you mentioned the power pop stuff. Like I found myself listening to several albums by the Rubenews because I went down a Wikipedia rabbit hole where someone mentioned that they once sued Avril Lavigne huh. because her song stole the cadence from, hey, hey, you, you, I want to be your boyfriend. And hers was, hey, I don't like your uh, yeah, girlfriend. Yeah, yeah. And it was same enough that they sued her and won and got a nice chunk of those royalties. So, hey, those guys are paying for their retirement. But then I was like, oh, they also did I Think We're Alone Now before Tiffany did. And that was originally by Tommy and the Chandels. Yes, and yeah. I eventually ended up back in that section because that's where my childhood listings live. When my dad used to buy those white label tapes from gas stations, all the pop hits of the 50s and oh, 60s yeah. that he would listen to of when course. he was little. Yeah. And, you know, your Danny and the Juniors and whatnot. So it's like you can still tie that back to a Wikipedia article I found and 
after playing Burnout Paradise because that Avril Lavigne girlfriend song is on there a whole bunch. And it's really fun to drive a car really fast to. And I was looking it up like, wait, why do I know that song? And ended up down this rabbit hole. So admittedly, while it's a different sort of thing, I suppose the internet as a whole can act as a a through line to new interests. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, it has been for me too. I think the key is sort of not getting so overwhelmed and like paralyzed by choice, like by the many, many options that exist. Oh, it's a real thing. Yeah. The choice, (laughs) the overwhelming choice is real. Yeah. Yeah. You have to be comfortable saying, all right, well, I'm doing this and that means that I can't do these other things right now. Oh, yes. But like I can come back to it. And, And I think that's actually another wonderful thing that the internet facilitates, which is the ability to return to something easily. I definitely don't agree with the idea that we don't value things that we find on the internet. Like I, I mean, I like the comedian Patton Oswalt a lot, but I think I just didn't, uh, he published, I can't remember if it was a whole book about this or just an essay that I read where he was talking about how like everything is available all the time, everywhere, always. And as a result, people don't value it. And he was sort of romanticizing a little bit the time when you really had to work at finding such and such a TV show or, you know, whatever. I think it's great that, I had those experiences of having to do some sleuthing to find things, but I don't think that that makes my enjoyment of those things that I discovered any better or more virtuous or worthwhile. (laughs) That doesn't, those two things don't fit together for me. It's kind of amazing that we're able to find these things as easily as we do. Yeah. And I mean, you mentioned growing up with a record player and so did I, though it was shortly taken over by the tape deck. Same. But in my particular history, I can remember having the Sesame Street Fever album with Grover in the John Travolta suit on the front. Oh my god, yes. (laughs) Very carefully bringing that over to my dad so he could put it on the record player. And I remember seeing like a kind of snide and smug poster in a record shop uh, recently, like in the last year or so, saying, nobody remembers their first MP3. And it's got a little kid holding a record. And I'm like, okay, I get where you're coming from. Yeah. But, yes, I do remember my first MP3. I was sitting in the sun porch that we turned into an office in Fredericton, New Brunswick, and I downloaded the Atari's San Dimas High School Football Rules because it was a reference to a Bill and Ted line that I liked. And it was just a punk song about, you know, being in love and being young and, and how it'll never be the same again. And I was really upset because they don't actually say the line of the title of the song in the song. And why would they call the song that if it's not mentioned in the song? So yeah, sorry, record store poster. You can suck it. Yeah, I mean, I'm delighted that record stores are making a comeback. I think that's great. But I don't think that purchasing something in any particular format has a like a moral or cultural valence. Like it is any better than any other. Absolutely. I think the maybe the one the one time I would disagree with myself about that is, you know, if I had the opportunity to buy that media at a show, do you know what I mean? Like at the merch Mm -hmm. table, you know, I know that that money goes to the band. Like, I think that's good, but I don't think it's immoral to listen to music on whatever format you want to listen to it. I remember I used when I used to go to, you know, back when I was going to concerts more than I do now. Right. uh, He said, adjusting his glasses. (laughs) I used to do my best that if I liked them at all, I would buy the EP or CD of the opening act because oh, yeah, that's a... chances are they're not making a lot of money. Right. Yes. And it's like, and every once in a while you'd hit on one where you'd be like, oh, 
that band that is now massive. I bought their little cardboard EP when they were the first of three openers for this bigger band. Right. And you get that little moment of happiness, you know? Yeah. No, I think that that, that is a, a mitzvah, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And also, just a quick side note, I am a fan of independent wrestling. And people, if you're going to independent wrestling shows and you pay for your ticket and you buy your beer and whatever else, go to the merch table and buy a t-shirt or a, a print or a pinup or something. Even if you don't wear it, even if you don't do anything with this picture of this you know, wrestler person, you are essentially giving that person a tip for giving you a good show. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's fair. Support your, your local artists. So we have time for maybe one more topic. So you did specifically hit on magazines. And you talked about Rolling Stone and Spin, but do you have any other magazines that you felt were really influential in your development as Young Sophie? Yes, absolutely. So my parents subscribed me to Highlights magazine when I was little. And then as I got older, I had a subscription to Cricket, which is like a literary magazine for kids. I believe it's a Canadian publication, actually. I think I've, I've, I can picture the yeah, cover. Yeah, it's in the same family as Ladybug, which I highly recommend for babies and toddlers. That's a great magazine. And then they have Grasshopper, Cricket, and then I think there's one more. It's a, a cute bug theme. I had that one. My grandparents subsidized our perennial subscriptions to National Geographic and Texas Monthly and oh, bless. yeah which were both like very very formative and like periodically we would get you know like 12 weeks of the new yorker and at the end like we would all be like oh my god i cannot keep up how does anyone keep up <laughs> and then <laughs> the answer is no one does no one can and that's okay and that's how you wind up being able to buy single issues for 25 cents at the local library's ongoing book sale <laughs> so yeah, those were big ones. And then I, yeah, I had Rolling Stone and Spin. Obviously, as a, you know, a woman in her 40s, I would be remiss not to give a shout out to Sassy Magazine. Oh, yes. Probably, I would say, like, that nexus of, like, highlights Cricket and Sassy with, like, a, an honorable mention for Rolling Stone are, like, the most formative magazines for me. Oh, I got Ranger Rick as a kid. As well. Oh, yes. Loved Ranger Rick. Now you're Rick. talking my language. Yeah, I love Ranger Rick. That was a really, really good one. That was actually, I remember reading in Ranger Rick. That was the first place that I remember knowing anything about how tuna were being harvested in nets that also caught and killed bottlenose dolphins. And I remember something in the article said, like, you know, one of the companies that, you know, is continuing to... to do this practice that's really harmful for dolphins is the Campbell Soup Company. And I mentioned this to my parents and they were like, you know, Campbell's Soup is based in Camden. You can write them a letter. <gasps> and I did. Of course you did. Yeah. And they wrote back <laughs> saying, you know, you're right. This practice is really a problem and we are going to be fishing for tuna in a different way, basically. Like we're not making the change right now, but it's something that we're working on. So, so what you're saying is you were single-handedly responsible for Campbell's Soup switching to dolphin-free tuna? Yes. I personally, as an eight or nine-year-old, was able to sway the mega corporation of Campbell's Soup in terms of their fish <laughs> harvesting practices. It can be done. I am a hero. It's true. It's true. And all with things you found at your local library. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, with that bringing it full circle, mm. 
Sophie, if people wanted to find your stuff on the internet, where would they go? They can check out back issues of Two Bossy Dames. We publish every week on Friday evenings. The URL for that is twobossydames.substack.com. You could subscribe for free. You could subscribe for $5 a month. We extremely appreciate that. And if you would like to follow me on Twitter, you can find me at Sophie Biblio. And yes, Sophie is a quality follow. I would highly recommend oh, it. Thank you. I do try. And if you did want to do that cutting edge movie book club, I would just, <laughs> like, I would, I'd call in sick if I had to. <laughs> I will mention it to Margaret and we'll see where it goes. Oh, I'm sure Margaret has cutting edge feelings. Like I feel it in my bones. I hope so. It hasn't come up in conversation <laughs> previously, but we'll certainly get to the bottom of it. Although actually come to think of it, knowing Margaret, I bet it will be something where everyone will assume it will be a Margaret thing. And then she wasn't involved with it and is now not involving herself in it out of some kind of sense of spite i don't know she's not like a she doesn't go for spite i think think, (laughs) a cheerful spite yeah more like a (laughs) just like a general oh you yes like a recalcitrance but i wouldn't i wouldn't categorize it as spite I listen to a lot of appointment television. I hear about the lots of things that she doesn't watch. Oh, yes. Yeah, no. It, it just right. So there's a uh, there's a difference though between the things that she like refuses to finish and the things that she only watches a couple of episodes of. Like those are two different phenomena. <laughs> All right, Sophie. So thank you so much for coming on. This has been lovely. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much to Sophie Brookover for her time. For Sophie's signature cocktail, she gave me very specific instructions. She said, I'm a gin and St. Germain gal. I also fuck with a rum punch, tropical drink, and favor citrusy and herbal notes. I loathe creamy drinks, and red wine is a one-way trip to headache town for me, so that's a hard pass as well. Now, Sophie, I too am a fan of the combination of gin and elderflower, and I could have very easily made a sour because... Those ingredients go fantastically with just a little bit of lemon juice and simple syrup, but I decided to go a little bit more complex. And so I present the cricket. In a shaker full of ice, combine one and a half ounces of botanical gin, three quarters of an ounce of grapefruit juice, half an ounce of Campari, and a quarter ounce of elderflower liqueur. Shake vigorously to combine and strain into a pre-chilled champagne coupe. Garnish with a twist of grapefruit peel. A mix of disparate influences blended into a smooth block with more rock and less talk. Just don't drink during drive time. Enjoy!
The Meth View is recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every second Thursday evening, and if you'd like to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at themathofyou, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram. If you have a few dollars kicking around and would like to directly support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash Lokified and pledge as little as a dollar a month, or you can pledge as much as you want. Now, this would be the part where I would normally make some grandiose statement about how, oh, you can pledge like a million bucks, that would be great. But look, I'm going to get real with you for a minute. I haven't posted an episode in like three and a half months because my dad died in April and I was really upset about that. And for a little while, I didn't want to be making things. But so many of you stuck with me and sent me a message of condolences and quite a few of you didn't edit your Patreon pledges, and for that, I really appreciate it. You'd be well within your rights to do so, and those of you who did, no hard feelings, I promise. But I am back to a fortnightly schedule now, so smooth sailing from here on in. If you'd like to support non-monetarily, you can go to Apple Podcasts or iTunes or whatever they're calling it now, and leave a five-star rating or write a review. It really helps the show and helps people find it, even if I can't find what their podcast platform is called now. I'm also on Spotify and Google Play and I think Stitcher, though I don't know if Stitcher actually worked. Anyway, if you see me on those platforms, leave me a review as well. It'll make me happy. If you like the music I play on the show, there's a Spotify playlist for that. You can go to bit.ly slash themathofyou with a capital at the beginning of each word to find a Spotify playlist going all the way back to episode one. That's a ridiculous amount of music, including this song. It's Girl Almighty by One Direction. I update the playlist as soon as the episode goes live, so make sure you subscribe and get that new music in your ears. Next episode, I'm going to be talking to one of my favorite people, TV writer for Decider.com, Brett White. And we're going to be talking about classic TV from the 20th century. Join me, won't you? Oh, and just before you go, there's a little bonus bit where Sophie and I are going to talk about Captain Marvel, so if you somehow haven't seen Captain Marvel yet and don't want to get spoiled, maybe skip that bit. Okay, bye. So I was gonna say, it's been a little while since we've been organizing this. Do you know, you were on the list of the first people that I invited before I even had a name for the show? You know, I did know that. <laughs> I'm so sorry that it's taken this long. <laughs> I remember your initial email and I remember thinking, I definitely want to do that. And then just not getting back to you in a timely manner at all. That is okay. Life gets in the way. And then the second time, it was my fault. You know, being oh. out of the country and crap. Yeah, so I mean, it's I like, you know. I don't assign blame there at all. <laughs> you could, though. That's the important part. Okay. <laughs> Although now I realize as we were recording, normally I record much earlier than this, like at like 6 a.m. when everyone else in the house is asleep. And I realize that I can hear my son running up and down the house practicing his new run because he's been walking for a long time, but he's really picked up like what the Australians will refer to as the piss bolt which is that he would just go from a standing start to full speed, like at it, like tilting forward at an angle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, yeah. Making gravity work for him. He's very dangerous in open spaces. Yeah. Oh, yeah. well, good for him. I did hear some little like chirps and coos in the background. <laughs> well, he did actually bust into one of my previous recordings. I'm in the front room of the house right now. And so he will occasionally, if the gate's not shut behind him, will make his way through here, push the door open, get on his little scooter, put his helmet on and say, all right, let's go, let's go. Beep, beep. <laughs> and it's like, 
Yeah, I can't, I can't right now, kiddo. I'm sorry. But that is so cute. It is, and it came through on the recording. You can hear him just, like, having this conversation with me as my guest just is just like, this is adorable. This is so good. It is. <laughs> Not great radio, but great content. Exactly. Exactly. What have you been up to? Well, we just got back from seeing Captain Marvel. <gasps> I saw it yesterday, too. I yeah. saw it yesterday, too. <laughs> Okay. I really enjoyed it. My daughter mm-hmm. is 13, and she was, so it was like in the little row, it was me and then my husband Marcus and our daughter Nell, and so I wasn't right next to her, but I could feel her like bouncing with excitement. <laughs> At certain points, I was like, okay, good. I knew, I knew she was going to like it. In fact, this is one that I was like, I'm just going to go along for the ride. Like, I haven't bothered to mm-hmm. learn really anything about the movie in advance i just was like i'm gonna go in cold and see what happens and i mean going in cold of course like when it comes to the marvel universe of movies is kind of a lie because i've seen so many of them in the theater i think there's only one or two that i've missed at all but it was yeah no it was really really delightful and it was so you could hear the age range of the audience at certain moments because oh, of yes. like the musical cues and because of the extremely late 90s technology. <laughs> so that was, I mean, that was, of course, you know, kind of just like fun Easter egg stuff. But yeah, mm-hmm. no, I, I loved, man, it was just so good. It was just about like, once again, friendship is magic, which is just one of the most important messages of those movies in general. I loved that it was just about, you know, this woman recovering her memory and doing good while she did it and scaring the likes of Ronan the Accuser. Sorry, spoilers. She scares Ronan the Accuser. Scares him real bad. Makes him run away. Yeah, makes him run away home. He's like, (laughs) I am not equipped to deal with this development. Bye! He's I'm a go. (laughs) Yeah, I just... I have no stake in this conflict. I'm yeah. gonna, I'm gonna go. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm just gonna see myself out. Bye, 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 guys. Good luck with the um, the destroying of the Grand Canyon down there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I did like, and thing is, did you get teary at any points? Because I'll tell you, I was, there were some some moments where there was some dust in the theater, and I don't know, it maybe got in my eyes and stuff. Particular <laughs> montage towards the end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was. I loved the way. Yes, yes, definitely. Uh, particular montage towards the end and mm-hmm. i loved the like i was really expecting i think it's ben mendelson oh yeah he was, was ex- he's having so much fun in this he movie he is and i was expecting him to just like have a lot of fun being the bad guy again which is something that he does extremely well and then he did i guess a face turn mm-hmm. i was just like oh this is great and like he got to be extremely good and also I thought it was a real feat that like Samuel L. Jackson and Brie Larson already had like their fun foils for each other banter chemistry going. And yet Ben Mendelsohn just slid right on in there and made it like this perfect isosceles triangle. I was very, very impressed. Yeah. And I even liked that because Ben Mendelsohn's Australian and there are bits where he's using his natural accent. Yes. Kind of graveled up a little bit. Yeah. But then there are others where he's kind of doing a Brooklyn thing, and there are others where he's kind of doing a South African thing, which fits because Skrulls are shapeshifters. Right. So, of course, he wouldn't have one accent. Right, right. It makes sense. You know, speaking a language not his own. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Like, if they're able to mimic the person or object that they're embodying down to the DNA, as they repeat mm-hmm. several times, it follows that that would extend to, like vocal cords and jaw positioning Mm -hmm. and all those other things that make up our accents. I also thought it was interesting that he was able to suppress his natural lisp. 
because I think that that must be such an integral feature of his speech that it would be really hard to redirect around it. Yeah. And I also imagine like with all the prosthetics and stuff that they're wearing for Mm. those scenes, it probably didn't help. You know, (coughs) it limits what you can do with your face. Yeah. Yes, I'm sure. I'm sure that's true. Yeah. It's not like Gemma Chan has an American accent in this film. And I imagine that was a little easier for her to pull off because she's got a lot of makeup, but it her face is still so clearly her face throughout like whatever she's wearing. She just happens to be blue. Exactly. It's not like a prosthetic or anything like that. So I imagine that gives her more freedom vocally. Anyway, it was a lot of fun and I highly recommend it. Go see it. Sorry about the spoilers, everyone. No, I'll put a warning at the beginning. Okay, good. Of the big thing. <laughs> but what I thought was really good, because yeah, like you, I saw it with, you know, a bunch of young kids in the theater because uh-huh. we're parents. So we went to see it at like, you know, 1120 on a Saturday morning. Right. You know, after having dropped off Hero at his grandparents' place. And so we went to this like shopping mall cinema. Actually, funny, the cinema where Kimiko used to work as a teenager that is still running. Oh, wow. And so she'll look and she'll be like, we'll be in cinema four. It's a good one, but it's one of the older ones. And I'm like, Okay. This was new knowledge that I didn't need to know, but okay. And then so we sat down and there were at least four groups of tweens in the audience and a couple of groups of kids with their parents. At the end of that movie, all of them were like yelling and pumping their fists and stomping their feet. Like I was just like, I was just, because normally I, you know, I love to talk after a Marvel movie, you know, it's fun, but I just shut up and listened. Like Mm -hmm. it was so great. And right when the... Captain Marvel will return in Avengers Endgame came up on the cinema screen. A little girl piped up, yes, yeah, she will. <laughs> and I went, oh, my heart. It's yes. so pure. Yes, that's wonderful. Yeah, the entire audience, but especially the kids all went, yeah, at that moment. It was really, it was really terrific. <laughs> there were lots of uh, no spoilers, but Thanos is fucked tweets after the premiere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's accurate. It was one of the interviews. I think it, I can't remember if it was with Brie Larson, if it was with one of the writers. But I also saw Into the Spider-Verse in the last 12 months. And so these are like very comparable in a lot of the themes and stuff. And one of the themes out of Into the Spider-Verse was that if you're a Spider-Man or a Spider-Woman or a Spider-Person, one of your things is that you always get up no matter how many times you're knocked down. Yes. Which is like an integral thing to the character that just like always makes me a little teary explaining it. And, you know, Captain America will keep getting up when he's always knocked down. That's another thing that's integral to that character. And those two, like, Captain America will get up because it's the right thing to do. Spider-Man will get up because he has to. And there's no one else who will do it. Carol gets up because fuck you. Yes. (laughs) Yes. That makes me so happy. (laughs) Yes. Carol gets up because, you know, fuck your gender norms. Fuck your ideas Mm -hmm. about propriety and safety and you know what a small person can or can't do yeah it was it was great and the thing that was so good about that and I know that they must have rehearsed it a zillion times to make it look as perfect and easy and and integral to their bodies as it did is the work with the various actors who played Carol over time just like the, oh, yes. the, her body language, every single, it was so consistent across every single one. Um, I thought that was really well done. Yeah. That little kid coming up out of that horrific go-kart crash. Oh my God. And like flipping her hair back as she's got blood running down her face. Right. Like, I'm going to do it again. And I'm going to hit that turn next time. And it's just like, ah, love it. Yeah. It was terrific. Strong endorse. Yeah. 
Strong indoors, indeed. And since I'm going to said spoilers, I will say something very quick about the end. Like, for the first time in a long time, I quietly predicted a line that was going to happen without even realizing I was doing it. <laughs> you know, at the, the end, when you've got Jude Law as Yon Rog saying, all right, well, you know, you've got to face me as yourself. Oh. And no light show. And come on, you've got to prove yourself to me. And there's a moment where she looks at him and I leaned over to, and, she, and she blasts him in the middle of his sentence. And it's incredibly cathartic and wonderful. Yes. And I leaned over to Kimiko and goes, doesn't have anything to prove to him. <laughs> and then she says out loud, I don't have anything to prove to you. And I went, I kind of froze for a second. And I was like, I'm in sync with the movie. <laughs> this rarely happens to me. <laughs> I think that's actually a good example of, well, clearly the movie has done its work. Right. And I am resonating with the message because it made perfect sense. All right, well, I suppose we should get started. We have talked for 15 minutes about okay. Captain Marvel. <laughs> a very worthwhile thing to talk about, for sure. Absolutely. I could talk for a lot longer, but 